Welcome to the Wise Roots Podcast. My name is Hugo Menard, and my guest on this episode is Micah Stover. Micah is a psychedelic trauma guide and integration specialist, working with people recovering from addiction, intergenerational trauma, sexual abuse, and PTSD. She is a writer, master certified coach, and currently in final revisions on a memoir about healing PTSD with psychedelics. When not busy with one of those things, Micah splits her time with her family between the West Coast and Mexico. She is a lover of travel and being a mother to two rambunctious boys. During the recording of this episode, we ran into some technical difficulties, which meant that this episode ended up being recorded in several sections, with several weeks passing between some of those sections. So naturally, there are a few discrepancies that you may hear. Now that you know that, enjoy the episode. Welcome, Micah. So good to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I would like to start with how you even got into psychedelics, because mm-hmm. most people, when they grow up, they don't say, you know what I want to do, <laughs> psychedelics. Oh. What was, I suspect there's quite a lot to it, but what were some of the key elements of that uh, journey? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, it just occurred to me as you said that, I hope, you know, in, in the future, maybe maybe kids will grow up thinking that this is a viable path for them as it is, I believe the future of mental health. So maybe that won't be such a forbidden path in future generations, but your point is very well taken, especially for me. I grew up in the deep South and what's referred to as the Bible belt in the United States and heavily, heavily influenced by evangelical background and beliefs. And so certainly from that context, I did not grow up thinking that I would be doing psychedelics, let alone that it would be my job to work with people in psychedelics. But it's interesting because sometimes it's the paradox of things that makes things make sense, right? Like when I, when I think about the evolution of my life, in some ways it was the extremity of all those things in my early beginning of life that led me to this, you know, like there was such deep indoctrination for me from just the very beginning of my, certainly of my narrative memory, that I think by the time I got to adulthood, there was such an accumulation of indoctrination and trauma, complex trauma, that all the conventional sort of methods for talking my way out of the pain and the rigidity were just not sufficient to really crack things open. And so that's really what brought me to psychedelics in in a therapeutic setting was some combination of desperate desire for something strong enough and big enough that would yield the results I was looking for a sense of urgency to stop this kind of line of intergenerational trauma that was at at the point I stepped into motherhood, it was very clear that that was an intergenerational theme in my story and one I did not want to pass on to my kids. And I think the third piece of it was just the recognition that science was, you know, that the, there was mounting evidence coming from research that this is really is the future of mental health in so many, so many different ways. This is showing promise that our other methodologies have not. So that's kind of what 
the short version at least of what led me here. <laughs> what was the thing that happened just before for you to do it the first time? Like what, what was that? Because I, I think that's a really important bridge there. Sure. So my first introduction to psychedelics was when I was much younger. And when I was 17 years old, I developed a well, actually, it started probably when I was closer to 16 years old. I, I developed a pretty serious eating disorder. And, you know, again, very traceable to those evangelical roots where sexuality is highly problematic and particularly a girl's sort of sexuality. You know, like if you think of biblical stories like the Garden of Eden, Eve was the problem. Um, she was the downfall of man. And so much of that was linked to her curiosity. Her curiosity was then linked to her sexuality. So for me, eating disorder, my particular eating disorder was anorexia. And it was so much of it was rooted in um, asexualizing myself, um, taking away that component of me. And, and also it was something to control. So how did this lead me to psychedelics? Well, after a, about two years of really rigid restriction of my diet, I was pretty malnourished. And my, no, I mean, I think my parents to some degree at that point knew something was wrong or off, but they didn't really know what to do. So I was still quote unquote functioning in my life. And basically one particular day I, um, I went out in the car and there had been a huge like Tennessee rainstorm and those are infamous there in the spring. And I, I basically passed out at the wheel of the car and the car hydroplaned in a huge puddle of rain on the road. And I had a really big crash. I did like, I woke up and the car was spinning, you know, really fast across the road. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? The car went off the ditch, like over a ravine, landed upside down. And for a minute, everything was totally still. I'm not clear if I was unconscious ever, or if it was all just frozen time, you know? And when I came to and was aware, okay, the car stopped moving. Am I alive? I'm not sure. And then I got this very clear message from my grandfather who was passed, who I was very close to. And it was like, you're not dead, but you need to get out of this car and you need to change your life like now. Um, and it just was like, just woke me up into everything that they, they being my family system, the community in which I was raised have been telling me was crushing me, was stripping me of life. And so at that point, also desperate and urgent, I think I had been up to then the girl who did every, you know, every rule given to me, I followed because I was so scared of what would happen if I didn't. And suddenly I was like scared, but also curious. What else is there? How do I find my way out of this? Because now I also had this wildly out of control eating disorder and so many things that I couldn't quite regulate. So that was kind of my first introduction to psychedelics. And it started first with cannabis, which, you know, but, um, amazingly, 
I, I credit to helping me cure a very severe eating disorder. First and foremost, it gave me my appetite back. And secondly, it helped to, it helped me to actually be able to digest the food without complete nausea. So that was kind of the first light bulb moment for me of thinking, gosh, if they told me this one was bad and it's doing so good medicinally, what, what about these mushroom things that people keep talking about? And in the, the mushroom experience, it was very much a clear message like, you're not the problem. All this other stuff is problematic, but you yourself, you can be fine. And so that was really the beginning point, I think, of my psychedelic experience. And mind you, I, I think it's important to clarify that I didn't go into that in some wild, rebellious sort of state. You know, it was a very isolated set of experiences. And I really just got myself with the help of these tools out of a crisis state. And then I moved as far away from home as I could figure out how to get, which was to Asia, where I had intended to spend a semester as a student and then ended up staying there almost five years. Um, and those five years were, you know, I think the time that it took me to really cut certain cords and deconstruct the programming with other cultural and philosophical systems. I still didn't know that my future was gonna be working in psychedelics, that came much later. Um, but that was really my first psychedelic introduction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many things I wanna to get to, but mm -hmm. I'm thinking mm -hmm. if we can kind of, just to give us the structure, because I know I'm gonna just wanna ask like a million questions, to kind mm -hmm. of structure it out in terms of the, the process of taking someone through the, the psychedelic experience. So mm -hmm. at the beginning, is there any uh, prep work or anything that's done before to, to set that up? Like what's that initial stage like? Yes, it's such a good and I think really important question. So for me in the path of training that I've taken to, to work with these tools professionally, which was heavily informed by an organization called MAPS, which is in the US, one of the organizations that's really leading the clinical trial research processes to legalize this, this thera therapeutic model. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's worth acknowledging that me coming to these tools as a practitioner is much more informed by like a clinical model than it is a more indigenous model. Now, that being said, I've spent the past almost three years in working and living in Mexico, where particularly psilocybin is a very um, long history of being used in indigenous contexts for healing purposes. So I think over the time of being here and being exposed to more indigenous practices, my kind of rigidity to clinical methods has loosened some, though I, I think to get back to your question, in a clinical context where we're thinking about using these tools for the purposes of therapy, particularly working with people who have pretty complex trauma, the role of preparation before going into the ceremonial healing journey space and the role of integration after is paramount. Because 
you know, one of the metaphors that I'll use to describe this, like say a client reaches out to me is, is to think of it like this. If you were going to go and have heart surgery, you would probably never consider working with a surgeon who said, yeah, just show up on Wednesday and we'll crack you open, see what's in there and hope for the best. That would be mind blowing. I think of this work in the context of trauma as being equivalent to, to a kind of metaphysical heart surgery. So just like the physical heart surgery, I want to do a level of preoperative work with the client so that both client and I can really understand what are we getting into? Where are the potential places for bleed out risk? How can we kind of um, resolve and or mitigate that potential for risk? Um, and then along those same lines, how are we going to ensure the efficacy of that surgery post treatment. And that's where integration really comes into play. So it's one of my golden rules for myself in working with clients. If someone says, I just want to have the ceremony, then I'm not the practitioner for them. Because in, in my sort of experience, those, those pre and post pillars are critical to the lasting efficacy of the treatment. Can you give some examples of what that pre- preparation looks like in like if someone they they walk into the room with you what what specifically happens there yeah so there's a couple of things that are at play and one of them is i i was about to say it's just this but just seems to imply it's not this big deal but it when when people have trauma and as especially if it's early childhood, much of their trauma is rooted in an absence of what we would call secure attachment, meaning that they did not feel or experience a secure bond to one or both of their primary or anyone for that matter, primary caregivers. And so what that does to a young person is it from the very early stages of their life's journey, it dysregulates their nervous system, meaning that they're constantly looking for someone to regulate themselves with so that they can stay calm. And so part of what I'm doing in, a, in the preparation space is enabling that person's inner child to develop some secure attachment with me. What do I mean by that? Simply stated, they're getting to know that I'm consistent, that I'm reliable, that I do what I say I'm gonna do, that I'm going to communicate clearly about what they can expect. If something's gonna change, that I'm proactively letting them know. All of this is critically important to that person being able to really let go and receive the healing benefits once they get into the psychedelic space. It is true that, that these psychedelic tools are kind of like power tools, if you will. That being said, even power tools can have moments when they don't work. And so many times when you hear people talk about, well, I went and I took all this medicine, but nothing happened. One of the first questions that I'll ask is, talk to me about your preparation work beforehand. Nine times out of 10, if not all 10, there was no preparation work. So how I would explain what went quote unquote wrong 
in that experience is that the person had no, not, no secure attachment in order to be able to let down their defenses. Right. And if someone comes to you and they, they want the therapy element of it in the sense of, let's say, got, rather than going from terrible to okay, going from okay to expanding more mm. into who they are, what happens there if they, they, they mostly have that secure attachment? Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. So this, I mean, this also happens a lot. And in that case, it, it's, it's different in the same. I mean, I would argue that still people need, a, need to work a little bit on secure attachment because the level of vulnerability that comes up and comes through in the psychedelic space is so, so, so intensely profound compared to what we do in our everyday life. That being said, I think you, you are raising an important point and there is a distinction. So another one of the um, psychological models that I work with a lot is something called internal family systems, which is um, just um, the idea that inside each of us, we have our own little internal family of parts. And all of these parts are managing our fears, our vulnerabilities, you know, we have protective parts, we have manager parts, and they're all trying to ensure that the, the self inside doesn't get wounded, um, doesn't get hurt in a, in a way that they can't overcome. And so even if a person is okay, but they're, they're not like in crisis, let's say, a lot of times what's happening is that they're in a lot of self-management, meaning that they're living from protective parts, which is so, so that's what I would say is, is still a function of survival as opposed to living or thriving. And so what I'll do with people in those instances is really work with them through the preparation period to try to identify what are some of their primary protective parts. Because what I see happen so often in the psychedelic space is that these protective parts come forward in a very unique way where they they say something like I'm ready to unburden myself I'm ready to take the armor off and it feels like maybe I could do that here and now and so in order for them to feel like they can do that they want to feel like they've got a captive audience somebody who's going to be able to understand them and really work with them in that unburdening process. So a lot of what I'll do with clients who fit that profile that you described is to try to really unpack that internal family, get a sense of what are the parts, what do they need, and then how can I meet and receive them when we're in that space? Mm. Does that and make sense? Yeah. How long, mm -hmm. I mean, whether someone is in crisis or in that mode where they're relatively mm -hmm. okay, how long is that prep work? Uh, how long does that take? Yeah, it's a good question. I, and people always ask me, like, how long do I need to get ready? How long is it going to take for me to be good? You know, and it's, it's such a good, valid question. And it's really hard to answer because no two people are exactly the same in what they need. That being said, you know, having done that, done this now for a while, I feel like I can give people pretty safe parameters and then it might, you know, ebb and flow a little mm -hmm. bit, but let's say someone comes in there in pretty intense 
crisis state. I typically recommend that they're going to want at least, you know, four to six preparation sessions before they get into the ceremony. And that's again, to build the secure attachment and the trust so that they can feel safe to identify some of their protective parts so that we can really make maximum benefit when we get into that metaphysical surgery, so to speak. For the person who's not in crisis and has done a lot of self-work, but still like that person might say something like, you know, I'm so much better than I used to be, but I still just don't feel free. I feel like limited. I feel like I'm 85% of my best self, you know? So they've got tons of self-awareness. They're, they're doing good, but they also have an awareness that things, they're blocked somehow. So for those folks, it could be two to four preparation sessions. Like, depending on how easily they can go into trust and secure attachment, um, depending on how much fear they've got about going into the medicine space and the way that that will take away their quote unquote control, that will really inform whether we need just two or whether we need more like four. I mean, again, those are generalizations, but those are good benchmarks to yeah. give people. And just to be clear, when you say a session, is a session generally like an hour long or do a session? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, what are the specific uh, plant medicines that you use? Because before you mentioned, like there are a lot of different types. So yeah. There are a lot of different types. So specifically, I work with psilocybin. Um, which is the active ingredient, active ingredient in mushrooms, in case anyone doesn't know. And, you know, psilocybin has a long history of being used as a, a healing substance. Um, so this is not new. We're just having a new cultural conversation about using it in these ways. The other medicine that I work with, which is technically not a plant, but it falls under the category of entheogen, which has meaning that it has psychedelic sorts of properties to it, but it's MDMA and MDMA, you know, has a street name. And I feel like an unfortunate street bad rap as ecstasy. Most people don't know, but it's worth, it's worth noting that when MDMA was originally created, it was created for the use with the intention to be used in a therapeutic setting, specifically with the idea of working with couples. And the name that, that was given to it was empathy, which is very telling of what oh. it's actually quite good at doing. It increases that capacity for empathy um, with others, you know, that that could be, you know, family members who've hurt us. Um, also, it can just be empathy with ourselves, you know, like a lot of times when people have gone through trauma, they end up blaming themselves, shaming themselves. And so one of the ways that I see MDMA be so, so powerful and effective is that it, it opens up this portal for people to let go of all that sense of personal burden and responsibility. So can you explain more about the, the different effects of each one? Because in my head, I was like, oh, psychedelics, are they all just something that leads you to the same door but in what you're saying it seems like there are different it, is, it sounds more complex than that yeah i think it is it i mean i hear what you're saying and i do think on 
like a, you know, very generalized sense, I think we can say that they all take us to a place of expanded consciousness. Like they take us out of the monkey mind. And once we leave that monkey mind place, then we can see, we have more visibility, so to speak. That being said, I think the nature of the experiences from one medicine to the other can be wildly different. Like if you juxtapose, what does ayahuasca feel like compared to MDMA? Wow, wildly different, right? So maybe I shouldn't make the assumption that people know. Let me speak specifically to the two that I work with. So I work with, as I said, psilocybin and MDMA. And often I'll use the two of them together. Um, And this is very intentionally done, done because I think of one, MDMA being a tool and psilocybin being more like a teacher. So let me unpack that. You know, it probably already, just the linguistics might give some insight into the hierarchy of sophistication I see the two as having, but I'll be very specific about it. You know, MDMA I think works as a tool. And in regards to to, to being a tool, I think it's like, so astounding at the job that it does, meaning that it, it helps turn up the volume on safety and trust in the body and turns down the volume on fear and doubt. Fear and doubt can be like the dominant overarching emotional experiences of people who have complex PTSD. So that can make it very hard for them to get into any really big significant insights because they're just so braced in fear, right? So if we we use something like MDMA as a tool, then we are, we're enabling the amygdala to stop its intense fear response to everything. Now, where I see MDMA as a tool be limited is that you know, once you get people to that, that like bridge inside themselves where they're like, oh my God, I'm not afraid anymore. This is amazing. And then they just need to stay there for a while because it's very hard to replicate an experience that you barely know. So I always tell them, okay, just feel that in your body. Let every cell really take in what it feels to be alive without fear, crushing fear. Just stay there for a while. This can be life-changing for people who've been in fear paralysis for for years, right? Now, when people are like, okay, I've got that, but now what do I do different with my life? MDMA alone isn't necessarily going to help them answer those larger sort of metaphysical existential soul type questions. Um, That's where I think psilocybin as a teacher can sort of come in and illuminate these really ancient truths, wisdom, you know, and, and I would also say it's important for people to know that I, I think we, we as beings, as souls, if you will, we have access to this information inside us, but we live in a world that is so inundated with stimulus, consumerism, politics, et cetera, et cetera, toxic stuff that we have become totally disconnected 
from our own spiritual wisdom. And so these tools help us to come back into communion with that, that inside ourselves. Right. Wow. Okay. And th this sort of goes a little bit back to the prep work. When you're doing psychedelics, do you need to, or is it a good idea to have a, a goal or a question you want answered or a particular intention, or does the plant do the thing and you sort of <laughs> just surrender to what happens? It's a little bit of both. I would say this is, that's a great both and question. Like yeah. I always encourage clients to go in with, with like an intention in mind, intention being highly differentiated from expectation, <laughs> though yeah. often easily conflated. Um, because to your point, you know, I really think that, especially when we get to psilocybin, I think that these, you know, Maria Sabina, who's sort of like the, the grandmother of psilocybin, you know, in Mexico, she referred to them as the little teachers, the mushrooms, because they, they hold so much wisdom. Um, and I, I mean, I certainly having witnessed now so many incredible incredible things that I, I just think they have like a higher intelligence. And so I think at some point we're, we're coming to this work to surrender our big brains and our big egos and just soften into spirit, right? And these tools help to make that more accessible. And I think when people have done their, their due diligence around setting intentions and being mindful it can be a lot easier to cross that bridge into surrender. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the, the mechanics of how this works with trauma? Like what, what mm. is going on to have someone not- Like in the brain, what's yeah. happening? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of things. I mean, it's a good question. So specifically, I'll start with MDMA because that's the one that I'll, I almost always, almost always will start with or recommend starting with when there's a lot of complex trauma and non-safety. And the reason being is that what we understand and know about how NVMA works is that it, it really pretty much talks directly to a part of our brain called the amygdala. And for people who don't know, the amygdala is the part of the brain that manages our fight or flight response. Um, so what can happen when we have trauma is that our amygdala, especially if that trauma is sustained, like, you know, an abusive relationship or, you know, in childhood or adulthood is that the amygdala, whilst it's very sophisticated in its ability to be on guard and keep us safe from trauma, it's less sophisticated in its capacity to differentiate linear time. So what does that mean? It means that the amygdala, if it gets any sort of alert, alert signals environmentally or you know, a trigger goes off, then it's off to the races with fight or flight responses because it's, it's gotten that message that that's what we need to do. So when we introduce MDMA, it's like saying to the amygdala, we're gonna just take a little time out from that fight or flight response. 
and it's loving. It's not like a mean, you know, we're shutting you down. It's more like a very gentle, it's okay now. You're safe. And we're just going to just not do that fight or flight thing for a little while and see if we can get some new information. Right. And so that's the mechanics right there. And when we can alleviate the, that individual from the fight or flight response, and we can have almost like a simulated redo of the traumatic moment, there can be retrievals of essential self that got lost, frozen, trapped in that moment of traumatic injury. And it's as simple as like, they can actually go back to that moment because the amygdala, God bless, is trying to keep them so safe, but it's actually making it impossible for them to go back to the moment and retrieve the thing that got lost. So when we can go back to that moment in time, we we can potentially forgive ourselves. We can, we can see it wasn't our fault. We can, you know, take care of that child in a way that it wasn't cared for or protected back then. So we can simulate a redo and that simulated redo gives new life force and potential to the person moving forward. Pretty amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> if so, because there are different kinds of trauma. So you might have one person who um, was in a, right, a really horrible car crash and then mm-hmm. another person was um, you know abused and they feel really ashamed by the sexual abuse say and then another person um, I'm just thinking about another kind of experience um, you know maybe there wasn't anything super explicit but implicitly their parents weren't really loving to them and there was just this mm-hmm. slight undertone that they couldn't really put their finger on of you're not really important or, or, or lovable. Neglect. Yeah. Does it mm-hmm. work differently in those different kinds of trauma? Yes. My experience would be to say yes. It's fascinating to see sort of what goes on and how people respond. And this is part of the grand mystery that I think we'll never be able to quite quantify and analyze. And maybe it's a good reminder that that's not the ultimate goal, (laughs) but it's a great, great question. I mean, my experience has been that generally speaking, people who have really extreme sort of like more of the extreme childhood abuse violence um, types of thing compared to say the neglect have a it's, it's, it's interesting paradox again like the people who have more extreme egregious trauma tend to have an easier time generally speaking of course there are exceptions in the medicine space or the psychedelic space than say the person who's experienced neglect, who has a harder time in the psychedelic state, but arguably quote unquote, had an easier time in terms of the actual trauma endured. But you see, this is my theory on this is that people who trauma is so relative, right? And people who have experience neglect often do this thing where they're like, but it wasn't that bad. I could have been beaten. I could have been violated. And so there's so much of what 
so much of that permeates being in the psychedelic space. This sense of like, I'm worthy of my own feeling hurt. Yeah. You know, where at some point, I think it is a universal trauma response that everybody who's gone through trauma, at least for a period, tries to deny it, minimize it, because that's a coping mechanism, right? But by the time you get a person who's had like sexual abuse to the psychedelic state and they see it for what it is, they know it's bad. You know, they just know there's no denying that that's bad. But in, if for some reason that seems to be like, the, the person can sort of embrace how egregious that was with a little bit more openness than like the neglect thing, which I just hope anyone who happens to listen, just hears this message loud and clear. Neglect is abuse. The absence of love and support is abuse. And it has a dramatically adverse impact on the emerging self in so many ways. So Ah, just let go of comparing. It was bad. It's bad to not know your loved and to not feel secure in that. That's a, that's a very unfortunate thing. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, looking through uh, your website and, and the other little piece you have out there, there was an excerpt which I found really interesting, which is you said something along the lines of in every trauma rests a jewel. Mm -hmm. can you speak to that because that sounds like I, I agree with that but I also want to know more yeah I mean I I oh yeah I mean so in my own personal healing work not meaning standing as a practitioner in the space with others but my own being in the ceremonial space I, the medicine has many ways that it likes to communicate its messages to me. One of them being that it will, there are these refrains that I'll hear over and over again, like in a given ceremony or multiple ceremonies. And one of them that I've heard so many times is this idea that trauma is the teacher, pain is the initiation. Now go do your work in the world. And so why, why I'm bringing that up now is because, you know, for me, inside the, the trauma, the, for me personally, the jewel is this, this, um, this, this gift of being able to do this work and being able to help other people to heal and find self-love and to find that there's life beyond survival. And that's just so amazing, you know, and I'm very sensitive because I think there's a lot of toxic positivity in the world. So I, I, I'm always cautious of, of making sure to contextualize these statements because I don't ever want to put happy spin on people's pain. That's wrong yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in my mind. That being said, I think there is, the, you know, if we can find the right resources, have the right support. Most of the times these, these, these tormented souls have such great wisdom and humanity that co can come through the healing of those experiences. And then they can, 
they can gift that life, other lives, with what those lessons have yielded. Can we now talk about what the actual experience is like of when you walk through the door to have your psychedelic mm -hmm. therapy session? Like, what's mm -hmm. that like from when you walk in the door to some of the, if there are typical experiences, or can you describe that a bit? Yeah. I mean, I very much treat it like a ceremony. I think that that's actually one of the things that we need so deeply in our life is more ceremony, more, more like embodied ritual, not just pantomimes. And so part of coming to the psychedelic space is about remembering that sacred process of ritual. So every ceremony for an individual starts with a meditation, with a prayer, with a poem, you know, with some sort of, you know, softening in to the intention to the ancestral choir that may or may not be partaking in the journey with the individual. I will then, the person will take their medicine. And then I always invite the person to out loud name their intentions, what's in their heart space that particular day as they're stepping into it. Because even though we've talked about it many, many times already, there's, there's something so important about anchoring that journey that they're about to go on with their own voice, you know, naming, this is what mm -hmm. I'm here to do. This is what I'm seeking. And then we let the medicine and the spirit sort of do, do the thing. And that can look so many different ways, depending on the person. I mean, I refer to my, myself as a trauma midwife, and that's very intentional because I actually think so much of the psychedelic space and ceremony is really a lot like a birth process, meaning that you know, no two births are the same. It's a very sacred metaphysical thing that's going on. There's fear, there's potential, there's beauty, there's pain. There's like every intense thing possible in this experience. And, you know, I, I didn't really realize this with like a conscious awareness until I, you know, began on my own healing path, but I actually come from a long line of midwives on my paternal side and just thought how it occurred to me in a, in a ceremony wow there's like a lineage of midwifery and so to be a good midwife you're really everywhere and nowhere in the room with the person who's giving birth meaning that you are intuitively tapped in to every breath to every movement, to every expression on the face, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the midwife. The, the sacred thing that's happening there is about, you know, the God or metaphysical entity, whatever you want to call it, and the woman and the spirit that's being born. In this case, the birth is the rebirth of self out of pain and trauma, limiting beliefs into purpose and potential. And so once the laboring process begins, I'm just everywhere and nowhere in the room 
helping when the person is stuck, letting them flow when they're in flow. Um, and you can do that by really paying attention and being curious and staying present. Yeah. And so I've, I've never done this and I know very little about like the tangible things that happen in the process. So when mm -hmm. someone takes this, are they, is it just you and them? Are they sitting down? Are they lying down when you talk about them yeah. being stuck? What, what does that actually mean being stuck? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, people do all sorts of things during just like, and, and in fairness, like you, you are not a woman, you haven't given birth. So you don't know women are laying down, they're moving. Sometimes they get in the bath, you know, and getting stuck just means like, there's a part that needs to break through, but it's stalled. And usually stuckness is about fear, fear of some, something that's coming and not knowing what it is. Like you can feel the intensity of, of something coming and it's, you're scared. And so helping someone move through that can be as simple as talking to them. What's coming up for you right now? What is your fear right now? Let's process it. Do you need a hug? Do you need a hand? Um, typically, I am usually, it's usually myself and the person in the room um, in a perfect world, we would have two people, in my opinion, a, a male and a female in every room. That's sort of the MAPS clinical model. So that also gets very expensive for people. So usually what I will do is I, I'm the person in the room and then I record the session so that if, if a person has any questions about what happened when they're trying to remember it after, there's a recording of everything that went on. For, for their benefit and integration purposes. Um, and also just because when we're working with people who have trauma around being violated, some of what can come up is transference around, am I gonna be violated again? Am I safe to be vulnerable? And so having those recordings can be really helpful ways to show people, look, you navigated this. We talked about boundaries. And that, so it can be healing in the moment and then healing afterwards also as they realize their own agency and having done a thing they didn't believe that they could do. Yeah. And in, in this process, how conscious is someone? <clears throat> Yeah, it's a good question. I tend to be a pretty conservative practitioner, I think by comparison to some, meaning that, you know, I just sort of have the belief that when we're operating with big power tools, a little bit goes a long way. We can always add more, but we can't take it back, right? And so, you know, I think sometimes when we go to higher dosages of these medicines, we can have what people will talk about as like an egoic death, you know, and that can manifest itself in so many different ways, like people becoming not able to articulate what's happening. They like experience their body as separating from their consciousness. These are all beautiful, beautiful things that I think, you know, in, in a soul's journey can be wonderful to experience and dot, 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 when we're working to heal from trauma, you know, a, a good first step is to just figure out how to be in my body safely before I try to leave my body altogether. Yeah. 
you know? And so keeping someone in a space where, again, that amygdala fight or flight response is turned down, but they don't feel that they can't protect themselves if they needed to. So it's like looking for that sweet spot kind of right in the middle where they still are conscious and aware they can articulate themselves, but they're not um, hyper vigilant conscious in the way that they might otherwise be in navigating their life. Yeah. And this brings me to something that I've heard multiple people talk about, and I suspect that there's some debate about the whole notion of bad trips. Um, mm. That, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard some people say, well, you know, you, you seem to a, little, a bit like, you know, it can open you up too much. And a lot of us don't know the basics of how do I reground, like how, do, how can I open myself up and then come back in and, and have that natural flow. So what's, What's your perspective on bad trips? And is there more context to that? And uh, yeah. Well, I, I think I sometimes upset people when I say this, but I just don't actually believe in bad trips. I think there are hard journeys in which the medicine is really inviting us to look at painful things, hard truths. Um, that being said, if we have the right integration, we have the right support during, um, we, we are prepared for the possibilities going in. This is very generative material to work with, to expand, to heal, to grow. Um, so I, I don't think that it's, it's bad. I think it's just can feel very hard, especially when we're not prepared. You know, like there's a great book called the immortality key. And, um, I, I recommend it to people if they haven't read it, but there's a part in it where someone is asking one of the shamans, like, well, what if I, you know, I'm really scared of this ego death business. And the shaman is like, no, you know, we, we say that if you get to have an ego death, you're lucky, you're doing good. Do it like 20 times. I'm probably not getting that exactly right, but that's like the way that I processed it because it's just so it's this notion that, I mean, again, I think we, Western society are attached to control. And part of that is like gets, gets um, attached to death. Death is being the loss of control of being alive. You know, yeah. like dying doesn't have to be bad. We can get good at that too. Yeah, I, I often wonder how much of the suffering that is experienced in modern times around death is really just because of the lens we look at death through. Um, I think like 90 something percent. Yeah. I mean, I, to be clear, like I, I have grieved when important people in my life passed, it's very hard. Um, and it's about attachment. You know, like, I'm not talking about secure attachment in the way that I was talking about it before. I'm talking about, we have like an earthly attachment to a certain relationship. And if, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, part of enlightenment is being detached. Yeah. Right. And um, what are some of the, uh, are there sort of typical experiences that people have during it in the sense that, is it a, um, do they, 
visualize things? Is it just uh, an internal experience? Do they hear voices? What's oh, kind of so going on many, there? Yeah, so many different things. I mean, I think you've, you've maybe heard about people talking about seeing sacred geometry. It's like a whole sort of patterning. Um, and this is a very common thing that people describe seeing sacred geometry, seeing colors. Um, so, some people are very visual in that regard. Some people are very, what I would call somatic, meaning their body will like tremble and shake. You know, maybe they will purge in some capacity. Um, and all of these are, you know, from like a healer standpoint, these are all great releases you know it and it's not like one is the hierarchical aim it's just like different ways of being elevated in consciousness um people hear ancestors speaking to them you know it, it people hear their own like wow there's like a voice inside me like oh i i like can hear myself in a different way the wisdom within coming through. So there's just, as some people are so verbal, you know, they'll talk nonstop the whole time. And then other people don't talk. They're nonverbal. And it's more of just like me sort of checking, how are we doing in there? Do you need anything? Are you doing good? I'm doing amazing, but I cannot talk to you right now. Yeah. <laughs> And you just touched on something there, which I'm really fascinated with, is the intergenerational aspect. Mm. So how does that come into it? And yeah, what's going on there? Wow. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what all is going on there or how it comes in, but it is definitely the case. I mean, I've experienced it personally, where like just strong messages about my lineage system were like revealed. I don't know any other way to say it other than just personally for me, it's like a, it's like a, a picture. It's almost like a dreamscape. You're in a dreamscape and you're seeing scenes and you're sort of hearing not necessarily a voice, but it's like, there's like a narration of what's happening in the dream. And, you know, for me personally, it was going back to like a, my grandparents' home as a child and being shown scenes. I like, I knew that's where I was because I recognized the place as familiar. It was, uh, my senses were like, oh my God, the smell, I can smell the, the smell of that house. You know, it's just very wow. sensorial. Mm -hmm. um, as a practitioner, I've sat with people when, you know, they're really, for example, I'm thinking of a client who was really having one of those stuck moments, you know, just like in a strong emotion, trying to work through it. And as you know, the practitioner, I feel like my job is, as I said, to support, but never to take over because I don't want the person to lose agency, least of all in that place. So it's more of like, how are you doing? Do you need support? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. This is hard, but I'm doing okay. And then it's quiet for a minute. And I could feel like, it felt like a cool breeze sort of moved through the room and it's happened enough that I, I know, okay, somebody just showed up in this room. Um, and so I'm just sitting and waiting to see what happens. And the next, you know, within minutes, 
the client is like, oh my God, my dad is in this room and he's talking to me. And you can just, like I said, you can feel kind of the energy of the room change. Um, and, and often these are like people who played really important roles in the person's life and they're coming to remind them of something or to tell them they love them. Um, it's really beautiful, you know? Yeah. And does that play a role? And I don't know if there's been any research on this, but with healing the intergenerational trauma as opposed to um, understanding or seeing or being in contact with people uh, intergenerationally? Yeah, you know, I think that this circles back to a question that you asked earlier about the connection between intention and just surrendering. So for me, coming to this work as an example, one of my primary intentions was recognizing there was some epigenetic stuff going on in my lineage system that I really didn't want to pass to my kids. And I think because that was such a core part of my intention, I have been shown a lot of stuff about my lineage system through the process. Um, so I guess my point is to say, I think there's a connection when people come with an intention around healing lineage stories of trauma, when they come around wanting to deepen connection to family members who they've lost, um, then that tends to show up somehow in the process itself where, you know, a lot of times I'll have people say, you know, am I going to have an ancestor talk to me? And I'm like, I don't know, is that your intention? So it, it does seem to be that there's a connection between how, how rooted that piece is in the intention that the person has and what the experience actually delivers, if that makes sense. Yeah. One of the, um, you have a quote by uh, Terence McKenna, which I really loved and I want to talk a bit about, which is, psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third story window psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing they open you up to the possibility that everything you know is wrong and to me what this speaks to is a you know that, that it helps you sort of wake up from the matrix um and you've spoken about they're being hard journeys, not so much bad trips. They're just hard uh, journeys that we can go through taking psychedelics. Um, and there's this, uh, often when I hear about uh, people who do channelings or connect with spirit in some way, it's often um, very benevolent. It, it often comes from this place of everything loving. And I was wondering with that waking up, with that seeing new things and dissolving those opinion structures, are the teachings that come through this ever harsh or uncomfortable or really difficult? Or is your experience of that always being benevolent? It's mm, a really good question. Um, no, I think it's both. I mean, I feel like I've had experiences where I've really sort of been shown the beauty of what's possible and then experiences where I've really been shown the worst of what we can do. 
Um, and maybe it would help to give a concrete example because everything is yeah. so esoteric in this land. <laughs> um, so one of the harder experiences that I've had since stepping into working in this world um, was processing the passing of a client who I should qualify. She and I never worked together in a psychedelic capacity. She had been a coaching client from years before when I had done more like corporate style, you know, 3D mind coaching, if you will. And I had lost contact with her over several years, but there had been a really strong bond. And then like maybe two or three years ago, she reached out to me and she had heard that I'd moved into working with psychedelics. And she told me she had sought out psychedelic therapy in um, just a sort of random retreat center without a lot of preparation work. And her experience there was pretty harrowing um, on lots of different levels. I think one, there was not any kind of adequate preparation uh, work and there was not a lot of transparency around what medicine was being given, what to expect. And she went into it pretty like naive and not knowing. Mm -hmm. And then the facilitator um, really, I I would say um, violated the the space in terms of taking some serious uh, things into his own scope of what felt appropriate that didn't feel appropriate for her again, to be concrete about it, suggesting that it would be important for her to be held by a man because she needed to heal from masculine trauma. And, you know, whilst we could argue all day about whether or not that might be therapeutic, if the person in the space doesn't feel safe doing that, it doesn't really matter if there might be potential value to it or not. And so rather than inviting her, asking if she felt comfortable, he just proceeded. So for this young woman, it exacerbated just a Pandora's box of trauma. And so she had reached out to say, can you help me? Can you help me try to put this together? I'm, I'm struggling. She was also bipolar. And there's a whole separate conversation there about how to use these sorts of tools when there's neurodivergence. And we still don't know the answers to that. I certainly don't. Um, but it's, it's categorically different. Anyways, the, the end of the story is quite tragic. She was not able to pull herself out of the, you know, the throes of really intensely activated post-complex trauma. And she took her own life. And, you know, I felt like I was devastated by that. Um, like just in the sense of, what could I have done, even though I, I knew there was like I did everything that I could, but also that this this was happening in this world and body of work that I feel so is so important to the future of mental health. And, you know, with most our things in my life, if I'm really struggling to find my higher consciousness, I'll go to the medicine for support, for wisdom. And in the right set and setting, you know, with guidance and help. And that was one of the hardest ceremonies I've ever had in my life. And part of what made it so hard is that the, the, the thing that was revealed to me is just like 
hard truth of reality, which is that some people are dark and they're broken and they're lost in their pain. And from the, that seat of pain, what matters most is power, is money. And it won't matter who gets hurt. And that was pretty bleak, you know? The, the way that I navigated through that, I was pretty nonverbal for most of the experience, which is not necessarily typical for me. I'm a pretty verbal processor, even in the medicine space. But I could not process verbally. Um, I could not, I, if someone would try to touch me, I would wince. Um, and the, the place that I finally got to was, where is there love in the world? Where is there love in the world? Where can I find love? And so my mind just kept showing me like the, the people, the animals, um, the different characters or scenes of life that reflected what felt like true love. And the message was like, you can't get lost in the dark. You need to know it's there and you need to press against it. And how you press against it is with love. Yeah. You mentioned bipolar. Mm -hmm. Are there situations where someone is, uh, you know, has some kind of condition or is too sick, too old, too young for to do psychedelics? It's a really, really good question. And in the fullest of transparency, it's one that I feel like I don't have the expertise to totally answer. Um, let me explain why. Because I think, you know, we're still moving on a path towards clinical usage of these medicines and legalization, which means the body of research that we're amassing now, you know, over the last five years is like quadruple from what it was five years ago. And, and a lot of that money is now going towards how do we use these tools to work with neurodivergence? But I think what we know now and what we'll know, I hope, in five years or so is gonna be so, so different. And for me, personally, as a practitioner, my background and training is in coaching. I consciously chose that path as opposed to like a clinical psychologist path. We don't need to get into the story of why, but it just means that I feel in, to be in my integrity as a practitioner, I don't have the expertise to really tell someone the, the complexity of what, what could possibly go on in a neurodivergent landscape. Um, now, we can get into all sorts of things about what is neurodivergence and how is it defined. Generally speaking, like when I'm doing an intake with a client, if they are saying to me, you know, that they have depression or anxiety that we can work with because we know a lot about how to do that. I know a lot about how to do that. I've gotten trained a lot in that. If someone says to me they've got like borderline personality or bipolar, I'm going to be the first one to say, I believe that these tools can help you. And I also think it is absolutely essential that you have a treating psychiatrist in the mix of this plan to ensure your safety. Yeah. Okay. And age-wise, is there a limit? Mm, I love this question too. Um, I think 
though people will probably challenge me on this. I mean, if a person is healthy, I think if they're healthy in their body and they are saying they want to like go out of their life with this bucket list experience or with the highest state of consciousness, then who am I to tell them no? I think that that's admirable, you know? I will also say that, you know, having worked with clients of all ages, genders, maybe not all ages, but when, when I say all ages, I mean, I've worked with people in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s. I've worked with people in their 20s who have not gone any lower than 20. So let me qualify that. Um, and it does look different depending on the state of, of life that you're in. And I think age is a variable, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. But, but what we do know is that neural elasticity and plasticity, it, it reduces over time, right? Yeah. And so while it's true that these tools increase neural elasticity, you think about how like a rubber band, if, if you imagine neural elasticity as a rubber band, Imagine what that rubber band might look like in the mind of like a 20 something year old versus a 60 something year old. Yeah. You see? Okay. Again, doesn't mean that they shouldn't do it. It just means you help frame expectations realistically. Mm. And when you're doing um, sessions with people, uh, when they're physically taking the psychedelics, mm -hmm. how long does that go for? And is there a benefit to shorter versus longer sessions? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, usually at this point, I work with people who are doing um, either like microdosing experiences or macrodosing, like deeper dives with the medicine. If we're talking about like a deeper dive with the medicine, more of like a ceremony, then usually ceremonies, depending on how a body metabolizes the medicine, will last anywhere from five to six and a half hours. So mm -hmm. it's it's a long haul of being in it. And it's kind of like it the, the ceremony has sort of like an arc where you can start to feel it kind of coming on. And that typically happens within 30 minutes to an hour, depending again on the individual. And then it will kind of build and build. And right around the three-hour mark, things tend to be at their fullest concentration. Um, and, you know, again, at the peak of that experience, some people are very verbal because it's like they're just getting so much information. Like, oh, wait, I've always had this idea about this thing, but now I'm seeing it in this whole new way. That's amazing. You know, and it can be really liberating to kind of see these things shifting in real consciousness space. Other people at the peak are very much more like nonverbal and what I would call somatic, meaning in their body. And you know they're in it and it's peak because their body is showing you that. So that can look like any number of things from, you know, shaking like a and shaking can be like a slight tremble or a vigorous kind of shaking. Um, some people will need to move, like kind of, you know, get into yoga poses. Some people will purge. Um, so 
yeah, I, you you kind of never know. Yeah. <laughs> and then once someone has has had this experience, can you talk about the, what happens after? What's the the sort of integration thing and, and taking that and moving on into life with yeah. it? Yeah, I think this part is is so paramount in terms of the efficacy of the work. If we're to think about it as a therapeutic model and not just like a, you know, mind blowing experience, not that one is better or worse, but just, you know, clarifying that. What I mean is that when people don't integrate, you can you will often hear things like this man, that experience blew my mind, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. I can't remember it. I don't know. It's just mind blowing. Like it was amazing. I felt really good during and after, and I think it's still with me, but I can't really remember. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not trying because I'm sensitive to not wanting to take anything away from anyone's experience. And I don't think that cognitively remembering every detail is the most important thing. And also, I think if we're coming to this for the purposes of therapy, that usually means that there are things that feel out of alignment in our current state of reality. And so therefore, if we're like opening up all of this new awareness and possibility within the ceremony space, translating that into you know, sustained change and repair after the ceremony is really correlated to integration. Why? Because if you think about it like, you know, the ceremony is this time in which you have a unique opportunity to lay down the tracks for some new neural pathways in in the mind, right? So that's awesome. It's like building, we're building a new, I had one ceremony where that was the feeling. I'm, there's like a new highway system being built inside my brain. <laughs> and then, so take that metaphor, right? So then you go back into your regular day and life and you've got this new highway system that's got all sorts of cool signposts on it that are new, but you've got the same old triggers, you know, because they're not going to go away. So you come to a trigger in your life and you've got those cool new neural pathways, but they're not like, you know, it's like they're not done being paved yet necessarily. And they're a little wild out there because they're new. But meanwhile, you've got the old pathways, which you kind of know suck and have some limitations. That's why you were there looking for the new ones. But The path is just so worn clear. It's like, you know, the bad things that are coming and familiarity can be kind of seductive. Right. So integration is all about figuring out how do you take those new neural pathways and make them just as viable as the old ones that, you know, really don't add up to the life that you you want. Yeah, that makes me think of a, a quote I keep thinking about, um, which is by uh, Krishnamurti. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, where he says, um, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. Right. And what what I'm thinking about here is how do we 
take that healing and incorporate it and live it without fitting in to a sick society without sort of saying like i'm going to take this and then i'm just going to go back into my box because everything's in a box here and so i'll fit in nicely I mean, it's a really good question. You know, I think some people get flooded and overwhelmed and go back to the box because the the like breaking free is just so daunting. Because even if they free their own mind, what about all their relationships that need to be redefined? What about a career that needs to be redefined? And and it can get overwhelming, like a snowball of like, I can, can't see the end of all the work that I need to do. And the world is relentless. Mm. So there's that. I mean, I feel grateful. I don't see that as much. More often than not, I see people just like, you know, it is very Matrix-esque where it's like, the, the walls of illusion are just coming down. And, you know, it's this idea, like once you open Pandora's box for better or worse, you can't really close it back up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What, do you ever get people who just, after having this experience, will just completely change careers or, you know, let go of a relationship and start a whole new venture? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So people often are like, my life is totally incongruent from, incongruent from my well-being. I basically need to change everything because I'm just tithing to every other system that exists apart from me. And that can be patriarchal structures, infrastructures, religions, familial systems that are, you know, deeply laden with abuse and et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of, of cord cutting and unlearning and relearning that has to happen. I mean, it is not a path for the faint of heart. You know, it takes a tremendous amount of courage. Mm. Right. And do people ever want to just stay in the psychedelic space? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. A very common thing that happens is like, like, um, it's like a sadness that comes on when the, so I talked about the arc and when yeah. the arc starts to come down and people are coming back, there's like a, a sense of grief or sadness. And, you know, depending on what has come up in the ceremony, it may be like the little kids kind of like, I'm sad. Like it was good there. Like things made sense. Or if it's more like adult stuff that gets processed, it's like grief about how can I change the world with what I know? What, if any, do you have processes of dealing with that sadness after having experienced this eye-opening, mind-expanding, incredible experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to, first and foremost, like even at the risk of, planting a, a negative possibility, I just name it before we even go in there. Because my experience with human beings is that we, we are super resilient. And so we can navigate most things if we have some scope of anticipating that it could come at us. So I just talk to people about it. So we don't know if this is going to happen. And I hope that it doesn't. 
but it's totally possible that you know the movement from being so connected to yourself to source to wisdom and then coming back into the world can feel a little bit jarring or you know you imagine like a plane landing with a turbulent landing and so just it's important to know that going in and then it's important to talk about how to support yourself should that come up and so if it does come up when it does come up that's actually part of the ceremony as they're on that winding down part. And it probably means that somewhere in their therapeutic process, there's healing that needs to happen around just being able to stay present with disappointment. Yeah. And how often can people take psychedelics? As in, if, if people want to come back, is there too much? This is another good question. I mean, so, and it kind of depends on different medicines, different things, different doses, different protocols. You know, I really tell folks that uh, it's really important to give ourselves time to integrate. So let's think about this. Many people agree, the general kind of consensus is that one ceremony can be like a year to five years of talk therapy. So if you think about that, depending on the scope for the individual, how much space feels reasonable to allow the self to really like internalize all of that? More doesn't equate to better. Yeah. And, and I think it's really important. I get a lot of really smart, high achieving clients that are like intellectually curious and driven and think outside of the box. And they're like super successful in their life, great achievers in their career. And also like working with some unresolved stuff on the inside. And one of the, the little traps that this personality type can fall into is turning healing into like an achievement course, right? So I learned all of this stuff. I'm ready to learn. Okay, let's wait a minute. You know, it's like letting wine age, right? If you drink it too soon, you miss so much of what's possible. Okay, yeah. And then I'm really interested in, you, you've spoken a little bit about this, about how you see yourself as a bit of a midwife uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to this. What is your internal experience like when you're with someone and they've just taken the psychedelics and they're going through this? What's going on with you? Yeah, so I, one of the things, one of the models of training that I've worked a lot with is called internal family systems, if you're familiar with that one. Mm -hmm. And the man who develops that model is one of the best definitions that I've, I feel like I, has resonated with me around higher mind, higher self consciousness. And he defines self as the part that innately knows how to heal and wants to. So high mind is the self that innately knows how to heal 
and wants to do that. And inside each of us, then the belief is that we all have access to that. And there's all these protective parts that kind of take over the show of self when we get hurt, injured, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm getting to your question, which is that he says, when we sit with people in these kind of healing containers, if we are in our self body, self mind, higher mind, then just being in that frequency is like a tuning fork for the person on the other side. So would another way of saying that, just to make sure I've understood it, be like you are doing what you can to help yourself be in the state that is most conducive to helping that person, almost like being in a, not a meditative state, but with the same intention of that kind of state of mind? Yeah, so two things. One is that I am in my, like, sense of uh, I trust me. I know how to heal, and I want to. And I believe the same is true for you. That's why we're here. This is the same that a good midwife does. She knows women have been giving birth for all of time. There's no need for all these crazy interventions. Of course, there are emergencies. Yes, I'm not negating that. But nine times out of 10, the intervention's not necessary. We just have to trust in the wise body, the wise mind of the person on the other side. And so the good midwife, and I would say the good psychedelic guide, is everywhere and nowhere in the room. Meaning that I'm not going to miss a beat. I'm tuned in to everything. Like the movement, littlest movement of some part of the body, the change in their breath. But I'm not talking a lot unless it's clear to me that they need help because it doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't need to insert myself into it. I just need to facilitate their process. That everywhere and nowhere just makes me think of quantum physics. Yes. It's like, yes, you are a part in the field here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. If someone is listening to this and they're going, oh, I'm interested, <laughs> you know, are there things um, that they should think about or sit with before um, reaching out to yourself or someone else? Are there common mistakes or pitfalls or sort of any recommendations in terms of what the step is from having never done it to going I, I think I might like to take the first step yeah it's such a good question and I think let me try to give a simple answer I mean the first thing that I would say is like so much of this work I think is about tuning back into our intuition and so you know, part of that is just feeling, is your intuition calling you to this with curiosity? And if so, then lean into it in whatever way feels like a safe, guided curiosity, you know? So that can be reaching out to someone, like you heard a podcast and that you liked what they said, or you read an article. There is an emerging body of resources um, that are very 
established and reliable to help people feel into it. I think the one sort of caution that I give to folks is like, like the story that I shared before of that young woman who, you know, she, I think she started right. She felt her intuition, felt the call, but instead of going through any of those sort of like, let me kind of explore this a little bit. Let me do a little bit of research. She just like leaped from the intuition straight into the depths. And there was no, there was no like in-between bridge to prepare her little inner children parts for what was coming, you know? Mm. So I do think going through some body of preparation, even if that's not super expansive, but deliberate and intentional is an important step. Yeah. Okay. If someone would like to find out more about you or work with you, um, how can they do that? And, and yeah. yeah. And also maybe tell people about the specific services um, yeah. Yeah, that you have. Totally. Um, so my, I have a website that talks all about my services and also links to different works. I do a lot of writing about my personal journeys. So there's, there's a link on my website where you can read all sorts of ceremonial anecdotes or vignettes, whatever you want to call them. My website is just my name. It's micastoverconsulting.com. And I also have an Instagram page. It's um, Sugarfoot Journey. And there's a little story behind that, but I'll save that for another day. But I try to be really intentional in, in curating with some consistency relevant content there for people. Um, and I try to regularly do podcasts like this because I think it's so important to, to bring the stories out into the light of day because there's still so much mystery and um, knowledge gaps about what is going on, how the work works. And so the more we talk about it, the more empowered people can be with that, that yeah. narrative. And if people aren't in Mexico, Mm. Is there a way to work with you? Yeah, I definitely work with folks virtually within the right context. And it's very much a case by case basis where we would explore together, like, how would that work? Do you what's your infrastructure of support locally where you are? Then are they thinking about microdosing or deeper ceremonial work? And all those variables kind of shape the rest of the conversation and where we go. But I, I do actually have clients in all different places around the world. So awesome. I am myself a bit of a traveler and I love, I love, I love working with people from all over. I think, I, I mean, I've often said, I think psychedelic is just a, a descriptive word for a certain kind of experience. I think traveling can be another way that we open up that psychedelic portal by just looking through the lens of another culture, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like the travel bug. I remember like coming back from traveling and it, it is that expansive richness and the same sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful. This has been an absolutely delightful, wonderful conversation. Um, and you're very articulate on all, all those different nuances. So thank you for what you bring and all of the, the wisdom, I suppose, that, that you carry with you. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed 
connecting and talking about all of this and just so appreciate your intellectual curiosity about it and wanting to bring the information into the world. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Wise Roots podcast. If you want to find out more about this work or contact me, you can find the info in the description of this podcast. If you like this, please share it around. Thank you for listening. Over and out.